Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. I'm good. I just, I feel like this has been such an action-packed week. There has been no shortage of Supreme Court news this week, whether we're talking about high-stakes battles over the census or we're talking about you know companies accused of child slavery. And just this morning, there was another order in an interesting uh, public health uh, coronavirus restriction challenge from a church in California. We'll get into that a little bit later. But no, yeah, certainly we are underway uh, in the 2020 term as the Supreme Court kind of heads towards its uh, December break. Yeah, so actually, just to to dive in, uh, as you mentioned, today the court revived a California suit uh, where churches are challenging state COVID restrictions. And that actually comes after a Thanksgiving Eve decision by the court that struck down similar restrictions on New York church gatherings. So basically, they're saying now that this precedent's on the books, this court, this, this case has to keep going forward. It really shows you kind of the instant impact of a Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who obviously cast what what we in the press like to call the decisive vote in that um, case out of New York uh, last week. Um, and yeah, as we've seen now that the court has decided that it's going to be more open to some of these religious challenges to some of these public health measures, you know, you're you're going to start seeing churches, synagogues, other religious entities start to have a little bit more success in their First Amendment litigation, saying basically, you know, why are these restrictions in place on our religious gatherings when you know maybe similar uh, when secular businesses that are deemed essential by the state um, don't have those uh, same capacity limits. So as you said, this lawsuit has been sent back down to the district court for further proceedings in light of its ruling last week, and I expect we'll probably see more to come in the weeks ahead. But getting back to December oral arguments, the court obviously kicked off its December uh, sitting, which is the last of the term. There's you know another week of oral arguments next week, but we're going to focus this week on the uh, on three cases that were argued. Um, between Monday and Wednesday. And let's start with one on Monday. This was a very closely watched case involving essentially whether the Trump administration can exclude unauthorized immigrants from the census. Now, you know, we've had some census litigation. <laughs> we've talked about it on the show. I was about to say, this feels like deja vu. A little bit. I mean, it, it, there's a slight tweak in the actual question at issue here. Um, instead of you know whether Trump whether the Trump administration can ask whether uh, census respondents are citizens, this one has to deal with whether or not the government can simply just discount the number of unauthorized immigrants uh, from the ultimate tabulation here, which is obviously very important because it deals with the whole question of congressional apportionment. So the census counts; the results of the census are used to you know dole out representation, seats in Congress, essentially, to the different states. And so you have claims by uh, a number of Democratic states and cities and also immigrant groups that are basically saying that, you know, this is going to have a chilling effect that is going to lead to underrepresentation in Congress um, for states with, you know, high immigrant populations, as well as, you know, just a, a, a lack of federal funding, because obviously those same census results are used to for a number, for a variety of different federal programs. So, that kind of brings us to Monday's oral arguments in the case. Um, the Trump administration lost in the lower courts, and now they want the Supreme Court to essentially greenlight their policy of excluding unauthorized immigrants from the census counts, which I should point out is something that has never happened before in the nation's history. 
And so it, it met kind of a frosty reception from uh, a number of the liberal justices. And surprisingly, at one point, even the new justice, Amy Coney Barrett, who pointed out that, you know, this was very much a break from the country's historical practice. But, you know, just kind of uh, after the dust settled on Monday's oral arguments, it didn't seem like there the, the court would get to the merits. Um, there was this interesting dynamic where the government essentially admitted that, you know, they're not ready. They haven't identified all of the types of uh, all of the subsets of unauthorized immigrants that it's actually going to discount. And they basically say that there's no possible way that they can, you know, discount the total number of unauthorized uh, immigrants in the country, which obviously is a number in the millions, because that would, you know, having to they would have to essentially have records on all of these individuals, which they obviously lack. And so you had kind of several justices on the court in which I suspect might be a majority of justices on the court saying, you know, maybe this is a little premature this case. Shouldn't we wait until maybe the government, you know, identifies certain subsets of unauthorized immigrants that they're going to try and exclude? And then we can have more litigation over that. I think maybe we're, you know, putting the cart before the horse a little bit here. So that's a potential way that you could see the justices kind of kick this one down the road without actually diving in on the merits. This is an interesting one, too, because, you know, normally, you know, we we hear these arguments and we might not get opinions for months, but the census is like ongoing. (laughs) Like they kind of need a decision, right? Yeah, there is a December 31st deadline for you know, the census results to actually go to the president to eventually go to Congress for uh, tabulation. So the clock is ticking. Obviously, uh, a, a Biden administration is coming in and wouldn't pursue this policy. Um, and so the court is going to have to act fast uh, on what it what it actually wants to do. But this is a fast evolving situation. Um, and I expect there to be um, you know, no matter what the results of, of the decision, especially if it's one that, you know, kicks the case down the road, there's going to be continued litigation over each particular subset of unauthorized immigrants um, that the Trump administration wants to exclude before this deadline. They mentioned at oral arguments that they could possibly, you know, um, uh, target the 700,000 plus uh, recipients of the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Rivals. These are unauthorized immigrants who arrived in the country as children that have obviously come forward to federal agencies to participate in that program. So the government has records on those individuals, and they could potentially be excluded from census counts. And there would obviously be um, you know, a, uh, a legal response from uh, probably various states and uh, immigrant advocacy groups to try and thwart that. But this is still a very much fast-moving situation, ongoing, so we don't know exactly uh, what it's going to look like just yet. Quite a web of litigation that I'm sure we'll be tracking throughout and for a long time, as you said. Um, So also this week and also on Monday, there was another big case. Um, I, I think it's safe to say that in a slate of major arguments this week, this one was like the biggest to watch, and that is Uh, The cases against Nestle and Cargill, which are two global food companies based in the U.S., Um, they are uh, facing two two suits that were consolidated um, from the Ninth Circuit and now are in front of the Supreme Court, uh, attempting to hold these companies liable for child slavery occurring on cocoa plantations on the Ivory Coast. these suits are using the Alien Torch statute to try to hold these 
companies liable, which is a first, um, essentially, you know, in the U.S. court system. And we'll break down the alien tort statute in a second. But the gist is the corporations are arguing that they can't be held liable. And from Monday's arguments, similar to the census case, uh, there was a strong sense that the justices weren't quite buying that argument. Right. Yeah. This case, these cases were filed in 2005 by plaintiffs who said they were trafficked uh, from neighboring Mali and forced into child slavery on these cocoa plantations on the Ivory Coast that Nestle and Cargill, you know, used as suppliers for their chocolate products. And they claim that these companies knew of and aided, abetted those, you know, horrible uh, labor conditions on those plantations. So obviously the corporations are arguing that they can't be held liable for this. Uh, And one of their arguments is that as a corporation, they cannot be held liable for these actions, which is an argument that justices weren't quite buying. Here's Justice Elena Kagan coming down on Neil Kochel, who is representing uh, the companies in this suit, about that argument. Could a former child slave bring a suit against an individual slaveholder under the ATS? So they, if it were in a, if it weren't extraterritorial and it wasn't yeah, a corporate no problem company, extraterritorial, yeah. no problem aiding and abetting, just a straight suit. Yeah, correct. Okay, and could this uh, same ch- former child slave under the same circumstances bring a suit against ten slaveholders? Uh, you know, if they if they met the you know the requirements under the, the law, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, if they if there was okay, so if, if you could bring a suit against ten slaveholders, when those ten slaveholders form a corporation, why can't you bring a suit against the corporation? Because the corporation requires an individual form of liability under inter- a norm of specific norm of, of uh, under international law which doesn't exist here. I think Sosa and Putnam... I guess what I'm asking is, like, what sense does this make? This goes back to Justice Breyer's question. What sense does this make? You have a suit against 10 slaveholders. 10 slaveholders decide to form a corporation specifically to uh, remove liability from themselves, and now you're saying you can't sue the corporation? And Justice Kagan wasn't alone. Justice Samuel Lita also, uh, you know... he came out with a hypothetical, right, about, you know, if if a company hires agents in Africa to kidnap children and have them serve in bondage on a plantation, that it, it's a, quote, pretty hard to take, unquote, argument that the corporation shouldn't be held liable just because they're a corporation. So from these pretty harsh come downs, it, it, it certainly can give the impression that, you know, Nestle and Cargill might be in trouble here, but that's not actually the case, right, Jimmy? Well, it's certainly not a good sign that, you know, one of their primary arguments in the case seems to be making the justices kind of bulk a little bit, Um, but it's not necessarily the end of the case. I mean, the justices could still rule for these companies and throw these lawsuits lawsuits out of court on narrower grounds, for instance, on the uh, argument that the companies make that the plaintiffs haven't alleged enough uh, nexus, essentially, to the United States to bring this suit. Um, that the injury, in fact, that they're alleging took place overseas, and they say that the <clears throat> alien tort statute should be not applied to essentially overseas conduct. There's a presumption against extraterritoriality, to use a very jargony phrase, but that's all to say that they don't think that there's strong enough allegations in the complaint 
that would actually you know qualify uh, to give them jurisdiction in U.S. courts. And I think Alito, at, at a certain point in the argument, you know, kind of seized on that point, and you know, he says, you know, the, in the actual complaint, forget about what the, the some of the later pleadings say, but in the actual complaint in the case. You know, the, the plaintiffs are basically saying that the companies knew or should have known. And he seizes on that and he says, you know, it's been 15 years since these cases were filed. Is should have known really good enough at, th- at this late in the day um, to survive, you know, uh, essentially uh, a jurisdictional challenge like the one that uh, the companies are making here. So I could, I could see that although the companies might, or although the justices might not go as far as to say that, you know, there's blanket immunity for companies under the alien tort statute. That's not to say that the plaintiffs are necessarily going to win here. So that was not it in terms of big, important cases this week uh, before the court. Like like we said at the beginning, it was pretty action packed. And Jimmy, I know you were listening in on Wednesday uh, to another important one involving non-unanimous juries, a topic we've talked about uh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit lately. <laughs> it, was, it was just last term when there was a big decision handed down by the Supreme Court in a case called Ramos versus Louisiana. Uh, the court held in that case that um, the Sixth Amendment's requirement that a jury be unanimous also applies to the states. So at that point, it was only, you know, Oregon and Louisiana who had had this long history of, you know, convicting people of serious crimes by juries that were not unanimous um, with some, you know, holdout jurors over the holdout votes of some of the jurors. Um, and so the court says this, but importantly, in that case, it said, okay, this, this new rule is going to apply to people whose appeals are still pending on direct review, you know, the cases that are still being in court. But it said, we're not actually going to get into this whole question of whether this is going to apply retroactively to all the thousands of people that are still, you know, in prison that were convicted of these crimes by non-unanimous juries. So here Enter- we are. Yeah, so here <laughs> we are. It, it wasn't going to take long before the court had to, had to clear that one up. So... In Wednesday's case, Edwards versus Vinoy, the court um, is deciding is is trying to decide just that you know whether or not to apply re- Ramos retroactively on what's called collateral review. This would essentially mean that you know people who were convicted of these crimes with you know holdout over the holdout votes of some of the jurors can essentially ask for new trials under this new constitutional rule um, that the court announced. Now it's all about what is the Supreme Court precedent for deciding when a decision on criminal procedure should be retroactive. And that was essentially the focus of Wednesday's oral arguments. Now, there are some kind of guidelines and and there's some doctrines that the court kind of uses to suss out when it should, you know, apply some of these rules retroactively. And one of them um, is whether or not the court has, you know, reaffirmed an old rule uh, and that is one of the arguments that the petitioner in the case, um, a man serving in prison for a variety of crimes in Louisiana who was convicted over the holdout uh, vote of the jury's sole black uh, juror, um, the state obviously had used a lot of its peremptory strikes on, pers- uh, on potential black jurors. I should mention that the defendant in the case is also black. Um, but he's arguing that you know, the Ramos decision last term reaffirmed an old rule under, you know, what were then the precedents at the time that juries need to be unanimous. And the Supreme Court has said that when that's the case, when a court announces the old rule, then there should be kind of a presumption in favor of, you know, giving retroactivity to that rule. I should say it met kind of a frosty reception. 
a number of justices w- were pretty skeptical that that was the case. I mean, Justice Elena Kagan, who dissented in Ramos, says, you know, I don't really think this is an old rule. I dissented in Ramos because I thought that our precedent had basically said that, you know, unanimous jury or non-unanimous juries were allowed. Um, but that being said, I'm really interested in your second argument. And the second argument is whether Ramos announced a watershed new rule. Now, these are all kind of these very vague terms. Um, I that, was about you know, to ask. So let's break down what they mean by watershed. Right. A watershed new rule is kind of one that goes to the basic fairness and accuracy of a trial. Think something like, you know, Gideon versus Wainwright is probably the most famous example when you, uh, the court recognized the right of indigent defendants to have counsel. Um, this is something that's at the, you know, core tenet of a, a defendant's uh, right in the case. And it has a big bearing on whether or not, you know, convictions are ultimately accurate. And so the court spent a lot of time, you know, arguing about, you know, whether this qualified as what could be considered a watershed rule. And Justice Kagan seemed pretty sympathetic to that view. Um, And as did Justice uh, Neil Gorsuch, who's basically saying, you know, if this isn't a watershed rule, what is? I mean, you know, these are convictions that would not have been convictions had this uh, rule had had the unanimity requirement been at place at the time. Um, And, you know, obviously Louisiana, who's defending this case, is saying that, you know, there's a lot of reliance interest that the state has, that it's going to have to give all these new trials to all these defendants that are sitting in jail right now. And it could be in, you know, over a thousand potentially that it would be really hard um, to adequately prepare for given their limited uh, prosecutorial resources. And Justice Gorsuch is basically like, why should we really care about that? I mean, obviously, you know, any watershed rule is going to m- make it difficult for the states to comply with it. But, you know, is that really a reason why we shouldn't, you know, extend these same constitutional protections um, that we recognized uh, just in just in April in, in the decision Ramos versus Louisiana? I just want to say that it's, <clears throat> you know, I used to pride myself kind of on being able to kind of count votes and see where the justices are leaning in some of these cases. But, you know, as the court has changed so dramatically, I mean, we've had, you know, what, three new justices in in the last four years. Um, It's becoming harder and harder to predict just how some of these vote breakdowns are going to happen. I mean, it used to be that you could kind of see the the line of questioning from like a Justice Gorsuch and say, uh, you know, here's a conservative justice. He seems to be aligned with uh, some of the positions that we think the liberal justices are going to take in the case. That should be enough to actually prevail and get a majority of votes. That's not the case anymore. And I actually feel like the the new you know COVID format of questioning actually also makes that harder since everyone's kind of getting their own time rather than you know all jumbling up on one particular point that catches their right. attention. Yeah. So I mean, after oral arguments Wednesday. You know, I was still kind of unsure as to what the court's going to do. Um, I would have probably predicted going into the case that they would, you know, surely extend, uh, make this, you know, watershed, I guess, if you want to call it landmark decision last term in, in Ramos retroactive. But, you know, it, it's it's getting harder and harder to predict some of the vote counts that are going to come out of the Supreme Court these days. And for anyone who listened to our previous uh, Crystal Gate ball gazing episode from last term we're we're not always spot on <laughs> <laughs> don't do that yeah don't go back and check to some of our 
our predictions. Well, I think that just about does it for us in terms of news from the court. But there's actually a little bit of fun uh, news uh, from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who held a rare interview with actually Gloria Stefan um, and her niece and daughter, who are hosting a Red Table Talk on Facebook Watch. Now, for anyone who's uh, familiar with Red Table Talk, you know, I, I think... Uh, most well known that it was like the Jada Pinkett Smith and her family hosting not too long ago. But now it's it's Gloria Stefan and her family. And they had Justice Sonia Sotomayor on. And they touched on so much from her childhood to her first days on the court to her current dating life. Um, it was really interesting uh, interview to watch. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that it's it wasn't just the late Justice Ginsburg that had her kind of like very enthusiastic fans. Turns out that Justice <laughs> Sotom- Sonia Sotomayor has like received a number of uh, marriage proposals in her in her letters to the court. And I think she says that she responds to each she one. She does. She said she responds to everyone who writes to her. So she's responded to everyone who's like gone and proposed marriage. Uh, she did lament a little bit that it seems uh, perhaps COVID has uh, taken a, a hit to her, her dating life right now i I would imagine yeah Yeah, but i'm just wondering she didn't necessarily announce like a no marriage proposal (laughs) policy just that maybe the right one hadn't yet come along so listeners out there if you're wondering if maybe there's a shot you never know that's true that's true Uh, on a more serious point uh she actually also brought up um something that caught my attention which was that she almost bowed out of the confirmation hearings uh because they were so intense yeah that one was interesting because i know that you know like Basically, every nominee that comes up before the Supreme Court, um, there will be, you know, personal attacks. Um, in when it came to Justice Sonia Sotomayor, obviously the first, you know, Hispanic nominee to the Supreme Court, it was actually her intellect that was the subject of some of these attacks, and so she said that those stung very, very deeply. And uh, I was surprised to learn that she had even considered uh, dropping out. I didn't, I did not know that. Here's a clip of, of her talking about it. Those confirmation hearings have got to be pretty rough, I imagine. They are horrible, Gloria. During the process, there were critics of my selection, people who were saying that I wasn't smart enough, that I would never make meaningful contributions to the court. And those criticisms stung. They hurt deeply. And at one point, I actually thought of pulling out. And writing a note to the president and saying, I don't want any more of this. And the one person I confided in said to me, Sonia, get over yourself. This is not about you. This is about my daughter. She needs to see a Latina as a Supreme Court justice. You can't give up. And that kind of shook me. It made me realize that, yes, it wasn't about me. Of course, she did get through the process. Uh, and in the interview, she actually revealed that on her first day, she walked into her office to see Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor sitting in her office. And that not long afterwards, uh, Justice Do- John Paul Stevens also came to pay her a visit. And, and she really talked about just how that welcome really made an impact on her. Um, you know, like I said, it was a really interesting interview. I would, you know, highly recommend anyone uh, to to go and check it out. Uh, kind of hope, you know, to see other few other justices uh, end up at the red table at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that just about does it uh, for us today. Uh, Jimmy, it's been great chatting. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. 
We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. Thanks. <laughs>